Welcome to Refocus, a podcast that helps you find your focus to build a thriving creative career in the music industry. I'm your host, Rosalind Dennett. Hello and welcome to Refocus. Our guest today is Jenny Whiteley. Jenny grew up in a musical family in Toronto with a dad, uncle, two brothers, cousins, and stepmom who are all professional musicians and songwriters. She played in the family band through the 80s and 90s, finally forming her own band, the bluegrass outfit Heartbreak Hill. In the early 2000s, Jenny started making albums as a singer-songwriter, garnering much critical attention in some awards. In addition to her two Juno wins, she has been nominated four times as a solo artist and with the Junior Jug Band and Heartbreak Hill. She has a SOCAN number one song award for her song Baby Eye, as performed by Amy Milan, and a gold record for her family band's recording. She's toured all over the US, Europe, and Canada, performed at nearly every major music festival, including Edmonton Folk Festival, Winnipeg, Vancouver, Mariposa, Stan Rogers Fest, Stardust Picnic, and many more. Jenny and her partner Joey run Old School Camps, a summer camp for adults that was started in 2015 and ranges from lessons in fiddle and banjo, songwriting, and much more. Welcome, Jenny. How are you doing? Thanks, Rosalind. I'm doing very well. That sounds very impressive. (laughs) It does sound very impressive. That's quite a resume. Well, it's been a long time and a lot of years to do all that stuff. The neat thing is that you've been surrounded by so many musicians in your personal life that formed a quite musical community around you. Has that kind of kept you going in the in your career in music? For sure. I think one of the big things was growing up around working musicians. So my dad, Chris Whiteley, and my uncle, Ken Whiteley, were always working, recording, and doing well, but they were never superstars or sort of like, it was like every day there was gigs and there was tours to be planned. And it was kind of like a regular life, except what the parents did was music and art. So I think having that role model has been really grounding. So I've always just been super excited about if I'm making something I I'm really into and enjoying and excited about enthusiastic about as opposed to like making career choices or moves. So I think like with that grounding and with all of those music people and artists around me growing up, like my parents, friends and people in their bands and stuff, I just kind of got addicted to that, to that community of like artists kind of hanging out together and, you know, inspiring each other. So yeah, the long answer is what I just said. The short answer is yeah, for sure. Like, Growing up in the musical community, that's still where I live, basically. And you spearheaded the legendary High Lonesome Wednesdays at the Toronto Silver Dollar. I mean, how long did that go for? I think it was like 21 years or something in total. My brother Dan started it officially with a couple of other fellas. And it was a fun night, but they weren't really, they hadn't focused in on like a sort of a genre. And basically what happened is Heartbreak Hill kind of was just forming And we got asked if we would mind giving a shot at trying the Wednesdays. And so because of that, it ended up being a bluegrass night. And so really it was Heartbreak Hill that kind of got that going. And then we we stopped doing it officially, but a lot of us stayed and kept playing with what became known as Crazy Strings, Mm -hmm. which was the collective, basically. But I think I was there on and off 
for a lot of that. The last few years, I wasn't there as much because I moved out of the city, but pretty cool. And I just like, it's been awesome to see so many people, like even now that I run music workshops for adults and stuff, a lot of people coming to teach are people that used to come to the dollar and kind of got hooked on that style of music, maybe partly because of that. So it's, it's really cool to see the continuum generationally too. Yeah, to be honest, going to the Silver Dollar was probably what first plugged me into the bluegrass community in Toronto. I think it was hugely influential on multiple generations of artists. I think it was a home for people too who were looking for, like it was kind of like you'd get like deadheads in there, you'd get like old time people, you'd get like swing dancers would come down, it was in the 90s, right? So it was like a place where it kind of like filled a niche for a lot of people that was maybe missing. And also because like everybody in sort of my group at that time, like our major influences were the sort of that second generation bluegrass players, like the real shredders, sort of like the first, like sort of like Tony Rice and those guys, I'm going to name them all and I'll forget somebody. But anyway, so like we were really attacking bluegrass and it was just a bit different. It was just different enough that it attracted, I think, probably younger people. Mm -hmm. There was always bluegrass, like with Heartbreak Hill, we did a lot of shows with the Bluegrass Society and things like that, but we would be opening for American bands, which was awesome. It was just a little bit more conservative, the Canadian version of bluegrass, I'm saying. Mm. I mean, I loved a lot of it, like the Dixie Flyers and stuff, big fan. It's not that, it's just that we were bringing our own like energy as our age and our early 20s into bluegrass, which I think was exciting for people, resonated with them. And were you writing original material for Heartbreak Hill? Yeah, I was. I was. And that was, and Dottie Cormier too. So we wrote a, quite a few tunes for Heartbreak Hill. We only ever made one record, which is unfortunate because actually I was, I started just playing bass in that band at that time. And so when we made the record, I'm uh, Victor Bateman, who's great, is playing on the record, but I wish there was a Heartbreak Hill record with me playing bass because I really, really leaned into it and loved mm. playing bass in that band eventually. And then was, and then got to play bass with Crazy Strings too, which was really fun for a lot of years. Yeah, we wrote original tunes. And actually, that's how I ended up making my first record, basically, was I had a lot of songs I was writing at that time that were kind of not going to fit in with the Heartbreak Hill. Like, even though they were super cool, like the band, my brother Dan Whiteley and Chris Quinn and Dottie and I, like, they embraced doing some pretty strange songs that weren't like straight up bluegrass, for sure. But anyway, then I had sort of a lot of these songs I was writing was fairly prolific at that time. And that stuff kind of ended up being my first like Jenny Whiteley record called Jenny Whiteley. And then I named my last record, the original Jenny Whiteley, just to really confuse people. So you released the album with Heartbreak Hill and then went on to record five solo albums. Do you feel like your songwriting process evolved throughout that body of work? When you're first writing, or at least most people, when they're first writing their first couple of records often don't have like a maybe an established career or a family and a lot of other things like own their own home like this run businesses all these things I do now so for sure the writing is more in fits and starts now but the good news about that and this is so cool I think that how this just kind of is the way life works is because I've been writing so long and have written so many songs now I feel like I just kind of have these wheels in the back of my head I know there's ideas there but I'm not panicked or anything about like getting them out and writing them because I just know they're going to wait for me to have the time and inspiration to like oh this is when I'm going to sit down and be excited about writing something I'm not a writer who makes myself sit down to write every day it doesn't really work for me never has mm -hmm. so I'm kind of more of an inspirational moment writer that's how it's always been. But I just had a lot more time and I was around a lot of live music, touring and all this kind of stuff. So it was, gave you that juice in the first like two or three records. And then after that, it's been more of maybe like, a, you know, what would be super cool 
is to make a record that sounds kind of like this. Like maybe do something that's like a bunch of songs I learned when I was a kid from my family. Or mm. And then you kind of putting projects together has become more of what I do now as opposed to just like, oh, I've just got these 20 songs that spilled out of me this year and I got to figure out how to put them together into a record. It's kind of like the opposite way of doing it. But it's great that I know now I have the skills and I have the experience that I look forward to my times when I can write and I don't worry about that not happening all the time. I don't mm. like, beat myself up for like, geez, I haven't written a song in three months. What's wrong with me or whatever, that kind of feeling anymore, yeah. which is very nice. So you mentioned that you grew up in a family of working musicians, not just a, a family that was musical. Uh, when did you start to feel comfortable identifying yourself as a creative entrepreneur? I think that artists and musicians are kind of entrepreneurial, right? Like they just sort of by nature, if you're going to get out and get your own gigs or find someone to play with, find lessons, all these things, find your, your community, like you kind of have that spirit in you some more than others, for sure. And I definitely have it. I've always sort of wanted to, ever since I was a kid, I think it's just my nature, like, oh, let's put on a play or let's do a magic show and we'll like get five cents from all the adults. Or I've always had that sort of like the Muppets on the road <laughs> sensibility, like, it'll be great. We'll put on a show and everybody will come. And But then I do think that there's like a lot of musicians, especially obviously through the pandemic, it was difficult for everyone's pivoting here and there, right? So that term. But it, it might have helped some people realize that they actually have a lot more skills and a lot more going on than they might think. Like, I've always thought there should be some a service for musicians who someone comes in and writes their resume and says, like, look at all these things. If you put it in the terms of, like, business world, you actually have management skills. You've been a tour coordinator. You've mm -hmm. done all these different things. And people sell themselves short because they think, well, I don't know what else to do. This is all I know how to do. And actually, I think if that's what you want to do, I, I hope that that's what you get to do. Mm -hmm. But if you were interested in other things, I think you'd be surprised at how much you actually know how to do. So in my case, I was always kind of interested in starting things. Like I ran a little festival up here for six years called the Elfin Roots Festival that was a cooperative festival. I never had more than 500 people come to it, but all the bands came and understanding that at the end of it, we split the money equally between everybody. So, and I starting big group tours like the Hootenanny Review, which had like eight bands and it was like 14 of us on the road together. We came up with a whole stage show. So I like all that kind of stuff anyway. And so this has been really great. And I, I find for me personally, it's not the same creative outlet as performing and writing songs, but it is as exciting to me mm. as doing other projects. And maybe for me, I need to have a balance of both. I can't just do one or the other. I know that's not the case for a lot of folks, but so when I had this idea and we started up the camps, I was also super fortunate. I guess I'd had enough experience too, where I knew this idea was something that people really did want. And mm. I was excited about it. And I think it came across and, it, and we were fortunate enough to be successful right away, which I know is not the case for a lot of things sometimes. And it, it's still a lot of work and it's still a labor of love because you wouldn't do it if you didn't love it. But the, anyway, I found that certainly throughout the pandemic and everything, Joey's also a chef. We're both people who just nice. kind of have a lot of skills mm -hmm. that we've developed through our lives just because we're, we just like new experiences, I think mostly. So we felt very fortunate, lucky, all these things to have other outlets for our creativity and honestly to a ways to make a living when there was no more live music and there was no touring and nobody really knew. And, you know, to be honest, like the money drying up from royalties and selling records, all these things have kind of culminated to make it pretty tough to be just someone who's a performing musician. So 
I think that a lot of musicians could probably embrace their entrepreneurial spirit a little bit more. And I bet you with a little encouragement and coaching, people would be surprised at like what other ideas they actually do have and that they could make them work if they wanted to. It's not as scary as it seems, I think. Do you have other creative outlets when you're not songwriting? Is there like alternative? Yeah, well, I do a lot of puzzles. It's maybe not so inspiring as it is like meditative. So Mm -hmm. like jigsaw puzzles and things like that. Uh, A lot of word games. I love that. And I find that that's kind of great for just clearing my mind because what's happening now in my life is that I, like I was listing all those things before I didn't have in my 20s that I now have, which is, you know, I've just got a lot of fingers in a lot of different pies. It's important for me to clear my mind so that when I come back to the task that I need to get done, whatever it's going to be that week, I'm not frazzled and I'm not sort of like muddled with all of this stuff coming in, especially now because you're getting texts and messages and emails and everything is happening all the time. People are just asking you for a lot. Like, Mm -hmm. so I, I think it's important to like do things for myself that make me just relax. Inspiration wise, I still love to go see live music. So I'm Mm -hmm. so happy live music is back. I just went to see Bill Frizzell on Wolf Island. It was amazing. So try to get out actually to see live music. Like even if I don't feel like it, I know it's just going to work for me. Mm -hmm. Go to New Orleans to the jazz festival, come back totally amped up and like ready to go. Mm -hmm. So that kind of, so I love doing that. And then whenever I can, if Joey and I both have enough time and we've like chilled out enough that we're like feeling re-energized, then we definitely want to like sit down and, you know, what we do for fun is we learn tunes that aren't like, we just learn covers. Like we'll learn an Everly Brothers song, Roger Miller song, or even like a pop song or like a rock song from the seventies, like kind of entering my yacht rock years. So (laughs) maybe that kind of stuff. And that, Mm -hmm. that's always super fun because it's not really work because you're not like, oh, we have to learn this tune for the show we're doing next month or whatever. It's just like, let's just learn a song. And it is easy to kind of get out of the habit of doing that just for fun. Like when we used to jam and play together with other musicians all the time just for fun. And it kind of naturally just stops happening quite as much. So it's good to just like get that happening. And also we're here in Elfin, which is mm-hmm. not necessarily easy to just beep up over to someone else's place and play together. So it's nice that Joey and I have the ability to like hang out and play music together. That's a real bonus. So then what was that move like for you transitioning from being in the big city to a more rural community in Elfin? I noticed that, you know, especially through the pandemic, there's been a lot of folks leaving the bigger city centers. Well, the good news is that I have spent a lot of time in Bracebridge with my mom's parents and my mom's side of the family is all from there, from Muskoka. So I kind of like, I spent like holidays, weekends, summers there. And so I did kind of feel, always felt like a little bit like a one foot in either a little bit country, a little bit Mm -hmm. rock and roll. So then my, because my mom had moved up to this area for a bunch of years. And so I knew the little region pretty well. And I did feel a connection to this area. So it wasn't like a real like shock. It wasn't like I'm someone who hasn't like spent time in the wilderness or on farms Mm -hmm. or all that kind of thing. So I was kind of ready for it. I was excited for it. We moved here 20 years ago too. So it's sort of hard to like even remember what it Mm -hmm. felt like before now, but we bought this place. And then the next year we had our eldest daughter. And so it was so many things changing at once in my life that it's hard to like separate one thing from the the next. But Mm -hmm. one thing for sure is that it was just at a time in our music where we weren't doing as many like shows week to week in Toronto, like it didn't really seem to be as clutch for us to stay in town in terms of playing all the time, because what we were doing mostly at that time was tours. So it'd be our festivals and touring. So that helped a lot at that time when we moved here that we didn't feel that we had to be playing every Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday or whatever. But you do pay the price for that. You do kind of end up 
not being on the top of people's mind. So you have to really work to keep your connections and your musical community together. If you decide to move away from it and you still want to be part of it, you know, you still need to like be like creating your own little projects and tours and reaching Mm -hmm. out to people and letting people know when you're going to be in the city. Like we've definitely found that that's been super important for us to keep all that stuff connected. And now you're getting to invite folks out to Alphen to come and hang out at the old school camps. Can you tell me a little bit about the origin of the of the camp and how, how that came about? So the old school camp started off, at least, well, it's still called the old school bluegrass camp, but because we do other kinds of camps now, we do a lot of songwriting and fiddle and banjo and some old time and stuff. We wanted to make sure it wasn't just too specific. So now we're calling it old school camps. The reason it's called old school camps at all is because my friend, Elisa, who we started the business with, bought a decommissioned public school in Prince Edward County. And I'd had this idea in the back of my mind. I knew all these people who were flying and driving all over the place to teach at different workshops. So like out West or down in the States. And then I also knew a bunch of people here in Ontario who were going to attend those and take the classes and do all that. And I just always thought like, I bet you there's a way we could do this in Ontario. Like, it'd be really cool if we had one here, we could have a lot of players from this province and a lot of encourage this kind of growth within our own setting. So when I saw her place, when she bought the old school, I just said, I have this kind of great idea. I think it's going to be really cool. And I think it could really work. What do you think? And she was looking for things to do. And so that worked out amazing. So we started in 2015. I think we had 30 people come the first year and we, we've, we grew to 50 people and that's as big as we ever want to be. So we have 50 people come to the main camp. And in the last three years, we moved it from her place. She decided to step away from that business. And my partner, Joey, and I decided that we'd just keep it and run it ourselves. We moved it from there to here in Elfin. Uh, which is in the Lanark Highlands of Ontario. And then it was a pandemic, which was pretty interesting. So we've only run it twice here because we did miss a year due to having to shut down for the COVID. It's really neat to see it growing, like to the point it sells out each year. And and that's really exciting that you're able to add more weeks. Do you think that there's, and maybe it's pandemic related, I don't know, but do you think that there's more adults willing to try something new or I mean it's not something that I think maybe adults think are is for them yeah like summer camp right mm-hmm. yeah well that's what I do I do try to say that when I write anything about camp that it's summer camp for adults because mm-hmm. it, it is like you're camping you're eating communally there's lots of play so to speak during the week there's lots of rules like it's really really fun it really does let you reconnect with your youthful self where you were someone who was open to new experiences and open to learning so I think there's a community of lifelong learners and people who are enthusiastic about new experiences out there anyway. Certainly seems to be a lot of folks in the arts and maybe in music in particular who are have that attitude. But I definitely think people decided throughout the pandemic, like, what am I waiting for? Like, mm-hmm. what am I waiting for this perfect moment when I can like afford it and go and take the time? And people just said like, that's it. I'm not going to wait anymore. I'm just going to start living my life and like having fun and doing things I've wanted to get back to and so that I do, I have noticed that actually a little pickup in that kind of attitude from from folks, and it's been really awesome to see mm. people coming out with that kind of attitude. Actually, yeah, it, it happens to me pretty often that I'll I'll step off of stage at a gig, and someone will come up to me and say, "Oh, it's so wonderful that you play violin. I, I always wish I would have learned as a kid. It's it's too late for me now. Or it's one of my life regrets." And I want to say to them, "It's it's not." too late. And you don't have to just learn 
when you're a kid. There's this huge misconception that that kids learn better, kids learn faster, it's it's easier for them. And I, I truly don't think that it is. My theory is that kids just don't know they suck. You know, they're just amazed that they're they're making sound and and doing that. And and as an adult, you have this whole life of lived experience honing your ear and listening to music and and you know becoming your own tastemaker. So you know when you make a mistake or a noise that isn't the most savory on an instrument, you're immediately judging yourself. And I think because kids don't have that inner critic developed yet, they're they're just not so hard on themselves. Does it take some convincing just to let adults know that it's okay to sign up for a music camp or take music lessons, that it, it isn't just for kids? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the only way I can really communicate that specifically to people is one-on-one. And luckily, mm-hmm. I'm out and about quite a bit, so I do meet a lot of people. And when I get a chance to talk to someone who's kind of on the fence and nervous about that type of thing, like I was told when I was a kid that I was no good or I had a, I couldn't sing. A lot of tons of people think they can't sing because someone at in their childhood told them they couldn't. And Mm -hmm. so they have a lot of trepidation about coming and sharing and they're going to be embarrassed. And like you say, kids aren't embarrassed. So they, that's why they learn so well. It works out really well that way. But as to your point, which is a great point that there's so much more experience and you've learned to learn so much in your life by the time you're an adult, that it actually can take a lot less time than people think. Like I sort of Mm -hmm. say to people, you'll be surprised at just taking your instrument out every day and playing all day with other people. But the difference between when you come in and six days later, you leave camp, you'll just realize your potential, which is the most exciting thing, because then you're like, wow, if I got that much better in six days, imagine if I took lessons for a year and come Mm -hmm. back to camp next year. It's not really not about like who got better and who's learned the most chords and the most runs or whatever. It's really more just about the excitement and like having something to look forward to and connecting with other people who do that too. Like that's another thing about camp that's so cool is that people realize, oh, there's all these other people. Like people have formed bands and little jamming groups and like song circles and all this stuff because they've connected at camp, which is like my favorite thing in the world. For folks who are just learning on their own, a lot of a lot of people might they might not be used to playing in front of another human or let alone people that they don't know. Do you encounter that kind of fear? And what would you say to someone that might be scared about playing in front of a stranger? Well, I mean, basically the way I built camp, my first original camp, which is the bluegrass camp, where I put in band labs into that camp. So my idea all along was to get people playing together right away. So you come and you do learn on your instrument. You'll be in your like banjo class or your fiddle class with your other students that are doing that instrument. But then another part of your day, just as important, is that you go and you work with an instructor and they coach you on how to learn a couple of songs together and get them set and ready to perform by the end of camp. So I always talk to people about how you're going to be so looked after and everybody's in the same boat together. And I think that's why, it's definitely why I wanted to put people in these, in these immediate bands, because then you're not just floundering out on your own with your own nerves and your own sense of self and everything mm-hmm. feeling so uh, vulnerable you have like a little gang you form right away and you're all in the same boat and you can all support each other and lift each other up. And then that really helps people in in that way. And it's such a safe and joyful environment camp. There's like no judgment. Like Ivan Rosenberg always says at the beginning of camp, he's like, put your hand up if you came here to judge people and be really (laughs) snarky and mean about other, other people. No, nobody. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. You know, we just try to make it fun and we really just hopefully people relax into it. 
And usually after the end of the first day, all nerves are calmed and we move through the the rest of the week with a lot of excitement. One of the instructors I noticed this year is Riley Boggess. He was the first person that ever taught me an old time fiddle tune. It was that like really kind of kickstarted my love for that music. This was like way back in like a young performer program in, in Winnipeg. And yeah, he's just the real deal. Such a great instrumentalist. How did you get connected with them? Because you guys have done some some recording and, and performed quite a bit together. I guess we did just one tour up here in Canada and mm-hmm. we might have done a show or two. He played with me at the Winnipeg Folk Festival. So it's in Winnipeg. I wonder if it was the same time because I taught a songwriting workshop that same year. So we were on this faculty or whatever together that year. So that's where I met Riley originally. So we just hit it off basically as people just hanging out, which was great. And that's always such a great foundation for playing music with people when you just kind of meet someone who has the same sense of humor and you can just kind of jive right away. And then I think I think I just kept in touch. I'm usually pretty good at keeping up with once I've met someone who I really want to be buddies with, like reaching out and being able to keep up communication. I also felt at that time when I met him that he would just love my brother, Dan. And so I said, like, we got to do some music together. You'll love Dan. He'll love you. So I basically just kind of took a leap of faith and said, like, why don't we just record a record and we'll do it at Luther Wright's Cottage on Lake Ontario and he'll record it. And everybody said, sure. So we did that. We never released that record. That record's in the can and it's sitting there. It's such a cool record. It just needs to come back to light and we need to figure out what Mm -hmm. to do with it. I just, I reached out to Riley just to see if he was available and for this. And he was so sweet. He's just the greatest. He was like, I have been thinking about how we can figure out how to hang out again. I'm so excited that you asked me and I'll totally be there. So we're all really pumped about it. Wow. I like that. Jenny, can you tell us a little bit about the songwriting camps you do? Yeah. So the songwriting camps sort of started as an offshoot of Bluegrass Camp. We do two camps in July, back to back. But then we have everything here where we could host something beyond that. So I think the the sort of natural inclination was to do something with songwriting since I'm a songwriter and so is Joey. And we write together and we thought we could run some of the workshops, but maybe we'd get someone like really exciting to come and, and sort of be, do the master class part. So we've done a few of those now. I don't want to list everybody because I don't want to leave anybody out, but mm-hmm. like we had Paul Langlois from the Tragically Hip last year and we've had Lynn Miles, David Francie, we limit those to like 20 people because for me, anyway, I've taught songwriting and when I deal with groups of folks, like that's the right number of people. You wouldn't want to do too many more people than 20. So we limit those to 20 and we usually split them up into two groups and do workshops, A, B them with the different songwriters and people get the chance to, again, like share their songs in the song circle, like in a sort of really fun and supportive environment and they get one-on-one sessions with some a songwriter to if they have like one thing they really want to work through or a specific question or play a song and get some feedback we do a lot of fun like games and things to get you out of your rut or like just kind mm-hmm. of open you up and get you to stop being so self-conscious about it and it's really really fun and it's where I'm the most hands-on like in the other camps I I'm doing a lot of things but I'm not necessarily teaching at them and at the songwriting ones I do get in a little bit more and do more teaching which I really love too I imagine it's a bit of a different mindset going into like a songwriting camp because you're you're sharing a little bit extra that maybe somebody going in to play the one in five at base camp isn't necessarily doing because you've got your stories and your the lyrics and the songs. And do you have maybe like a tip of like one of the ways that, that you make people feel feel comfortable just to share a song that they're that they're working on, something that they're workshopping if they might be a little bit 
nervous to take that step to, to sharing it. I mean, the only thing I really can say about that is that I and the rest of the other songwriters who are quote unquote professional songwriters who are there running the camp, we open ourselves up to the same thing. So we'll do all the exercises with the group, which means we're writing a song in five minutes or we're mm. coming up with the worst possible chorus we can and sharing it with the group and just kind of realizing not to, trying not to take yourself so seriously to know that we all understand how it can be on one hand, super difficult to write an, a song in a real labor of love and can be kind of a difficult journey. And on the other hand, sometimes can just be really joyous and happens quickly. And, and, and that's where songwriting lives. It's in the middle of those two things. So I would explain that to people. And I would also explain to them that the process is very open. Everybody is sharing a story, sharing a joke, sharing a concern. There's laughter and there's tears and everybody is in the same position. And even if you've written 150 or 1,000 songs, if it's a new song, you still feel vulnerable. And that's great. Hmm. That's where you should feel. You don't want to just be Tin Pan Alley churning out song after song. You want to hopefully try and use those emotions to make your song just even that much more real and approachable and understandable to other people. Try to keep it about your real experience. That's that's what we try to do. Do the folks that sign up for your workshops, what level would you say these experienced songwriters or if you've like written a few ditties? Oh, you can definitely, everything is in there. Basically, if you are, have the, the desire to write songs, that's what, the, that's what we're here for. So whether or not, you know, you've scribbled a few and you think you have it in you, but you don't know how to do it. Sometimes we have had people who come and they're like, my block is that I don't play an instrument well. So I don't know how. And so then we can work with those people and show them this is a way you can write without having to play an instrument and get started at least and find melodies. We do like workshops on melodies, harmonies, forms of songs, like what's a bridge? What does this mean? Like, And the thing about that, of course, is we all, as lifelong learners, if you're a musician, you're generally that kind of mindset of the more you learn, the more you know you can learn. Like, So we've had professional songwriters and professional musicians also come to our music camps to learn a second instrument or maybe someone's a guitar player or a mandolin player but they don't really solo and they want to take it to the next level and that's someone who gets into this like band lab with someone who's all they do is strum around the campfire at home and they both learn just as much it's the same with songwriting you know if you come to songwriting camp it's a there's a good chance you've come to give yourself like a, a boost in your creativity. Maybe it's like you're doing something for yourself for a change. Like there's all these good reasons to come to something like that. So we have people there who are really established songwriters and just have so much fun diving mm -hmm. into these things. And maybe they haven't ever done an exercise like the ones that we're presenting to them. And they're like, this is so cool. I never really thought about songwriting as like a game. And so it gives people a lot of like new ways to look at something that maybe they've been doing for a long time. And, and also people who are just starting gives them a, a boost into like how they can actually turn their ideas into tangible songs, which is super fun. That's so fun. And before we wrap up, can you tell me why you would encourage somebody who maybe hasn't heard of or isn't familiar with bluegrass why you love the genre and, and what can they get out of discovering something about bluegrass? Well, the original reason I chose to make bluegrass this, the music that the camp would be built around was for sure that it's something I love. I played a lot and I have a lot of friends who are excellent bluegrass musicians. So I knew the community would be available to me to 
try this new experiment and, they, and I could ask my friends to come and teach and they'd take a chance with me. So that was exciting. But also I realized as I was putting the camp together kind of on paper for the first time that it's a great way to learn to play together because it's kind of a set band. There's sort of a traditional way that there's basically like five or six bluegrass instruments that are in a band and they all kind of have parts they play. And I thought, well, that's actually going to be great because even if you're not really into bluegrass, but as long as you kind of like acoustic music, folk music, country music, fiddle music, you're going to be able to dig into a little bit of beginner bluegrass music, mm. basically. It is, a, it is a difficult idiom. We don't expect people to have raging solos or anything, mm. but we do teach people how to fill in spaces and how to use mic work is really fun because that's something else that people do in bluegrass. So it gives you something to focus around that old standard bluegrass mic. And so anyway, we tell people usually Ivan Rosenberg, who is such a help to me all the time. He sort of advised me. He said, you can send them a, for instance, a, like a list of songs they should be familiar with before they come to camp. He said, but then they're going to expect you to work on those songs all through mm -hmm. camp. And people just tend to, you know, do a lot of homework before they come. He said, we, we agreed on this, that the fun thing is for the surprise to kind of, we sort of discover things with the, with the rest of the campers as we go through the camp. And so obviously if you don't really know bluegrass, it's pretty easy these days to just kind of Google it and look at like who are the, who are the most listened to bluegrass bands and just get a sense of what that is and then come to camp and we'll take it from there. Like mm -hmm. that's the nice thing about doing something like this is that you are uh, coming and you're, allowing someone else to kind of fill your days. And that's, I always super appreciate that people trust us to take them on this journey. I mean, I guess the proof's in the pudding with the return campers. We have like, I think at least a third to half of the people every year are repeat campers. So oh, cool. it's got to, we got to be doing something right there. I feel like if you play an instrument and you haven't been explored improvising before, it can be a really nice kind of launch pad into that. There's a pretty basic set of chords that you're dealing with. And they're obviously everything can get more complicated and more virtuosic, but it's a nice kind of, kind of launch pad and in like a, a safe environment, specifically with the instructors that you have and you folks, it's a neat launching pad into, into discovering that. And also maybe like a neat way to learn how to play with like a singer too, if you haven't mm -hmm. like accompanied, I don't know there's instrumental stuff, but like a neat way to kind of learn how to accompany either another instrument or accompany a soloist or accompany a singer. I mean, that's a huge focus in the fiddle and banjo camp that we run too. And that is kind of why it's called fiddle and banjo camp. We do have other instruments that come there, but the idea is like, let's try and learn to play together. So those two instruments it's really fascinating to see how they can work together. And so that's what, that's why I'm excited about that camp too, is that mix of instruments, but also like at the bluegrass camp, it made me think when you were saying that, that we have every night, there's a slow jam, which is really just going through songs, just like it sounds really slowly. And it's a way for people to actually realize, Oh, timing is <laughs> the most important thing. Like I, we always talk about, if you ask anyone, if they'd rather play with any of these musicians here teaching at camp, if they would rather play with someone, you know, who knows all the chords and has a lot of slick licks or has good timing, they're going to choose timing every time. So it's kind of like, that's another nice thing about bluegrass is like just getting the fundamentals of timing and different ways you can back each other up 
is is really available to you in that music. Well, we'll put all the links to the camps and how people can find the camp on, on social media. It's oldschoolcamps.com too, in case someone doesn't know how to look up things. Mm-hmm. I'm actually doing, speaking of when I said we, I bought, we bought this house 20 years ago and our daughter's turning 20. It's like all these things are happening. It's the 20th anniversary of a lot of cool stuff. My record, Hope Town, is the 20th anniversary of that. So we're going to do some shows this spring. I haven't played like a, a show under my own name for, I think, six years. So wow. we're doing some shows finally, which I'm super excited about. Great. And so they can go to JennyWhiteley.com and yeah. find out where to find you in the springtime. Exactly. Summer. Well, mm-hmm. so great to chat with you, Jenny. Thank you so much. You too, Rosalind. Yeah, thank you. That's it for this episode of Refocus. Please subscribe, rate, and review on the podcast app of your choice so you never miss an episode. For more information, you can visit us at folkmusicontario.org and follow us on social media at Folk Music Ontario. This Refocus session is brought to you through the generous support of the Department of Canadian Heritage. Mm-hmm.